Hi, I'm Rebecca Costa, and you are listening to Culture Matters with Chris Smith. Build your cultural competence. Listen to interesting stories. Learn about the cultural fails and how to avoid them. Get the global perspective here at Culture Matters on International Business. Your host, Chris Smith, has a plan. A plan for people who are looking for a solution. He makes you understand cultural diversity better by interviewing real people with real experiences. Every episode, he interviews a prominent guest who will tell you his or her story and share international experiences, making you more cultural competent. And now, here's your host, Chris Smith. Hi there, my name is Chris Smith and you're listening to the Culture Matters Podcast. We are on episode number 126. If you have not subscribed to this podcast, I think that is a good idea to do that right now. Today's guest, this episode's guest is Rebecca Costa. Rebecca Costa is an American social biologist and futurist. She is the preeminent global expert of the subject of fast adaptation and recipient of the prestigious Edward O. Wilson Biodiversity Technology Award. Her career spans four decades of working with founders, key executives and venture capitalists in Silicon Valley. Costa's first book, The Watchman's Rattle, A Radical New Theory of Collapse, was an international bestseller. Her follow-on book, titled On the Verge, was introduced in 2017 to critical acclaim, shooting to the top of Amazon's number one new business releases. Costa's work has been featured in the New York Times, Washington Post, USA Today, San Francisco Chronicle, The Guardian and other leading publications. We don't talk too much about culture and cultural differences. This sort of this podcast sort of spans the globe, if you want. So, and we do talk about the future, and I think it's important for you to listen to that one as well. It's time for this week's guest at Culture Matters. Rebecca, good morning. How are you? I'm very good. All right, excellent. excellent. Actually, I'm I'm assuming it's morning because I'm not 100 percent sure. The reason I'm saying it's it's morning where you are is because it's 5 p.m. where I am. And I think you're on the other side of the world. So having said that, can you tell us a little bit about yourself, where you come from originally, where you're now, and what would you consider your so-called cultural frame of reference? Well, that's a big question, Chris. <laughs> I'm going to get some coffee and I'll get back uh, when you're done with the question. <laughs> we can We can consume a couple hours with that. <laughs> okay. Well, let's see. I, I am a sociobiologist by training. Most people don't know what that is. That's uh-huh. just basically an evolutionary biologist that looks at current trends and uh, tries to look at the evolutionary basis for why humans and societies are behaving the way they do. Mm-hmm. Um, I happened to land at a very young age in what was later to become Silicon Valley. So obviously, uh, after I graduated college, I was... Um, caught up in what was going to be Silicon Valley, and that was in the late 70s and early 80s when Bob Noyce was developing the first chips and Mm -hmm. uh, Steve Jobs and Wozniak were thinking about personal computing, and there was just this explosion occurring, Mm -hmm. and I got caught up in that, and uh, I I was lucky to work with the founders of Apple and the founders of Intel, and and uh, these just phenomenally great minds and uh, avant-garde thinkers. And 
that really shaped a great deal of my thinking about where the world was going. So mm-hmm. I, uh, like many people, decided to form my own company, uh, and I was fortunate to sell it. And when I did, I uh, moved to beautiful Big Sur, California, and began pulling out all of my notebooks and thought, I'm going to write a book about what happens when social progress, technology, science, uh, the world that we live in begins moving faster than the actual human brain is capable of wrapping its arms around. Right. And, uh, you know, for all, and you know this as well as your listeners do, uh, a, a book on uh, science uh, and so- social trends, I should have probably sold 10 copies. I was pretty sure my family would each, you know, everyone in my family would buy a copy. But it wound up going to 27 countries and, and we now have 350,000 people following us on Facebook and suddenly I was deluged with speaking invitations and so on and so forth. So it turns out that there's a there's a much larger group of people who are socially conscious and interested than I ever expected. And uh, and so, you know, that I have the opportunity to speak to you today. Exactly. Well, excellent. It's a. Um uh, I've I've written down some some notes already on this. Um, like we like I told you before hitting record, that I usually start out with a blank piece of paper. And from what my guest is is talking about, I always get new ideas and new questions. Um, and where are you currently located, Rebecca? I'm in, I'm calling uh, yeah I'm calling in from Portland, Oregon. Okay. And I generally okay. work here or in the Boston area or most of the time in Silicon Valley where my roots are. Oh, okay. All right. Uh, I was thinking you, you mentioned what you are in terms of of, of um, profession, a sociobiologist. What kind of education do you need to have to to call yourself a sociobiologist? Well, at the time, you know, we didn't have hybrid degrees. Now you can go and make a suggestion that you'd like to combine two disciplines into mm-hmm. a hybrid degree. Mm-hmm. At the time, uh, Edward Wilson, who uh, actually formed the study of sociobiology out of Harvard University, uh, his first book came out just as I was graduating. So I wound up getting a combined degree in both sociology as well as biology, which is really not sociobiology, but it's as best we could do at the time. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, it's like when people ask me, so what do you do? And I, I, I have to use this horrible world consultant. Uh, and then, yeah, consulting in what? Well, I'm an interculturalist. A what? An interculturalist, and then you have to explain about different companies uh, working across borders and working with different cultures, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, in in your bio, it also says you're a futurist. What is that? What do you do with that? Or what is that? What is that? Well, obviously, I, I I work in the technology field, and I work a lot on predictive analytics, looking at trends and where trends might take society. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, you know, I work a lot with governments and large corporations and you know, when you have thousands and millions and trillions of data points, it's not that hard to figure out what the next data point's going to be. You can just follow the trend. And so because of my book, which I wrote, I wrote my first book seven years ago, not knowing that Donald Trump would come into power and Brexit would occur and all of these things. But remarkably, um, my many of my predictions based on where trends were heading, were mm-hmm. accurate. 
And so I got this label futurist on me. You know, if, if I were really a futurist, I'd be a wealthy woman. I'd know where which stocks to buy. Exactly, exactly. I, I can I can promise you um, the work I do is tedious and it's mathematical and analytical. And, uh, you know, I, I as we get better and better tools, computing tools, mm-hmm. uh, my predictions get more accurate, but they really come from analytics, not from some foresight that I have. Mm-hmm. And by the way, when you, you mentioned your book, that's you're calling about the uh, talking about the watchman, watchman's rattle. Is that the book you're yes. talking about? A radical mm-hmm. new that theory of collapse. Book. Yeah, that was my first book. And. I went back and was very interested in whether uh, prior to the collapse of the Mayan civilization, the Romans, the Khmer, the Egyptian and Chinese Ming Empire, Mm -hmm. were there any ways in which society was behaving that set them up for collapse, for Mm -hmm. unilateral collapse? And I became very obsessed with this. And as I went through, I began to see that there were a few signs that occurred way before whatever cataclysmic event uh, triggered the collapse. And one of them was the complexity of the society began to accelerate to the point where the person on the street really could not uh, deal with the layers and layers of complexity. And so there, the second stage was there was mass confusion between what was in fact an empirical fact mm-hmm. uh, that could be proven and what was an unproven belief. And once that began to occur, once the, the, the person on the street could no longer tell a fact from a belief, uh, public policy began to be based on unproven beliefs and the society became highly irrational. And once it made that turn, it didn't take too long for some cataclysmic event to trigger collapse. But now, now when I talk about collapse, as you know, I don't mean everyone's going to die. No, I no, just no. simply mean that social systems revert back to something that we can deal with. Yeah. So as an example, right now, our economic systems are highly complex and, you know, we don't understand uh what uh, derivatives are based on, currency uh, rates are based on politics more than tied to any kind of standard. Uh, None of it really makes sense when you talk to experts. When the stock market goes up, everything goes up or everything goes down. And uh, and so we can't make much sense of it. Um, And as a result of that, uh, you know, we just have to uh, we, we have to realize that we're we're kind of in a really erratic society right now, mm. and we're living in erratic times. And um, uh, and and we have to understand that if there is a unilateral economic collapse, uh, what will happen is these complex derivatives and vehicles and instruments we have uh, on the stock market will revert to simple barter in the street. You know, I'll meet, you'll have some carrots, I'll have some eggs, we'll meet, we'll bicker with each other, we'll each think we got the better of the deal, and we'll trade and walk away. And that's what the human brain is designed to understand, mm-hmm. and everything above that level is a la- layer of complexity, which we're not really, uh, from a physiological standpoint, designed to comprehend. 
Okay, it's it's this is I want to I'd like to sort of press pause um, also for the audience to sort of because I want to come back to this, but I also I want to go back in your lifetime because also in your extended bio it says uh, you were raised in Tokyo, Japan, um, Laos, and during the Vietnam conflict you were there. Can you tell us a little bit about how that went and and also how that sort of shaped shaped you or, or changed you into what you are now and and seeing. See, seeing the world through different different glasses, if you want. Well, I did not know it at the time. Uh-huh. I, I have to preface this, but my father was working for the CIA, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, I was born in the United States. But at a couple months old, we moved. We relocated to Japan. This was about the time the uh, Vietnam War was heating up. Mm-hmm. My father was working in Laos and also in Cambodia mm-hmm. at the time, uh, both countries that did not want to participate in the Vietnam War and declared themselves neutral. Mm-hmm. But it, realistically, the Khmer Rouge was coming into Cambodia and the path of Laos were, uh, again, just like the North Vietnamese coming into Laos. Mm-hmm. And so the United States CIA set up uh, secret air bases and was arming the citizens of both those countries. And my father was involved in that. Mm. So I went to a Japanese school, grew up for 16 years in Japan, and then we were relocated to Laos, Cambodia, and Thailand during the Vietnam War until mm. things got too hot and we had to evacuate to the United States. And mm. um, from my perspective, that has greatly shaped my thinking because mm. the Japanese think so far out down the road, uh, you know, they, they live a life of, um, endurance, Yeah, you know, uh, they're endurance players. They're not really that concerned about immediate suffering no. or unhappiness. They are constantly looking out for next generation, mm-hmm. following generation, what's happening, uh, on the long tail. And that, uh, that kind of frame of mind is definitely uh, had an impact on me because I I'm not really that interested in you know what's the latest uh, YouTube fad mm-hmm. uh, or what is what are people uh, flocking to uh, what are consumers flocking to buy I, I I really don't think about those things I think about very very big pictures of where is humanity headed mm-hmm. and what patterns what larger patterns are we missing not the small ones but the really big ones about how we tend to behave and whether we can change that you know by understanding it better and this is why i'm a little bit of a data wonk mm. okay <laughs> is is it necessary to change it well it depends on what you think is ideal. You know, uh, it's hard to ignore that we're trashing the environment that, you know, is responsible for our survival. Uh, it's hard to ignore some of the long-term consequences, which cannot be reversed on a dime. Mm-hmm. So this is why I feel predictive analytics is very, very critical for our survival, because we now have very sophisticated models which are getting more and more accurate every picosecond of every day as we amass more and more data. And so, yes, I I think it's very important that we make some changes that are based on models that are predicting very bad outcomes. 
Okay. So I was thinking when you were explaining your your earlier when I said let's let's pause and let's go back to how where you grow up and how that has influenced you. Has has your work uh, been related to the work of Yuval Noah Harari, the 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 man who wrote Sapiens, for instance? Is that is that linked to each other or is it complementary? We're complementary, and I am a big fan. I think we are both on the same page. Mm-hmm. Uh, there mm-hmm. are many there. One thing I, I would like to point out is is uh, there are many scholars that are looking forward and trying to understand patterns and and trying to educate people on on what these patterns tend to be uh, so that we can make better choices and decisions, particularly our leaders in business and in government can. Um, and uh, but I will tell you, there are very few women. Mm-hmm. In the fee in in uh, that are futurists, mm. and very few women that get the kind of play that he does relative to their scientific work. You know, I, I'm always shocked when I ask people name one wo- famous woman mm. scientist, and they can't name one. Yeah, that is one. And I I'm thinking, wait a minute, we've we've progressed a little further than that. Yeah, yeah. So I appreciate the opportunity to have this format to talk to you. OK, well, it's it's a it's an interesting point. And, and to that extent is would you what does a woman see the see the way you look at the world differently than I mean, if I being a man, would I see the world different than than you would? Well, yes, you would, because your brain is not the same as mine. Uh-huh. Okay. You know, uh, many people listening today may not know, but if we had two people of approximately the same size and, and we were to do an autopsy, you know, without looking at anything but your brains, mm-hmm. we would immediately know which was the male brain and which was the female brain. Mm-hmm. I mean, our brains are, from a from a, a physical standpoint, yeah. they don't even look the same. Yeah, I was, I was going to ask... So, so, yeah operational standpoint they don't work the same either they never will does does that mean the end of emancipation then no (laughs) (laughs) no no but it does mean you have an excuse when you make make some woman unhappy (laughs) right yeah yeah yeah, exactly exactly yeah interesting Good point. You, you, you already mentioned this earlier. Uh, you look at trends, data points, uh, more and more trends, more and more data coming in with every picosecond, et cetera. Um, then you look at global phenomena like big data, uh, predictive analysis you've mentioned. Probably artificial intelligence will fit in, fit in there as well. How do these phenomena pan out in different parts of the world? I mean, isn't it, if I make the statement, the United States is first again with this, am I correct or not? And how, how does rural India deal with this, for instance? Well, right now, I, I, I believe this is not an empirical statement I'm going to make. It's an opinion statement mm-hmm. because I, you know, I, 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 it's important to make that distinction. I believe we are entering a very predatory period. Mm-hmm. And that predatory period is going is triggered by data. Mm-hmm. Those who have data can make much more informed decisions about future events and outcomes. So I think people are not completely understanding how accurate and how critical that data is. I'll give you two quick examples. One is we can now predict when a person is going to trip and fall 
within a three-week period of time. Now, when I say that, most people just think I'm an absolute loon until I explain. Go ahead, explain, please. Well, we've discovered that there's a um, three to five centimeter change in your normal walking gait and that that is the precursor to you tripping, stumbling, and falling. Now, you can imagine... The great advantage having that information before you fall Mm -hmm. would be to someone who's elderly because frequently those falls mean breaking a hip or leg and having to leave your home and go into assisted living. So that's just one example everybody can really relate to. Mm -hmm. From a business standpoint, the largest retailer in the world, when they discovered that cows produce less milk as temperatures go up, Uh, they began tapping the NASA uh, and NOAA meteorological database to see when those temperatures were likely to go up. And that allowed them a great strategic advantage because they could go in and lock in milk prices ahead of all their competitors, knowing there would be a shortage and that prices would go up. So it's anybody who has this information, what better advantage could there be? in business or in nature or in any kind of competition, then certainty of the future. Mm -hmm. There isn't any greater advantage than that. And that is what is occurring right now. Whether it's genetic testing that will allow you to know what diseases that you are predisposed to get so that we can use uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, certain types of uh, genetic therapies to mm-hmm. head off those diseases so you never have to get them, mm-hmm. to heading off you tripping and falling, to heading off uh, taking your money out of the market prior to a financial uh, downfall. Um, people who have the data have that advantage. Mm-hmm. And the only people who have the data are extremely large corporations that have quantum computing, artificial intelligence, and tools that the rest of humanity do not have access to. Does that mean and the world is going to be ruled by those really companies? Different. What is that? I, I said, is, does that mean that in the, in, the, in the future, near future, the world will be ruled by, by these companies because they can pr- pretty much predict everything that you and I will do? What do you mean in the future? Already. <laughs> It's already happening. Uh huh. In what way? Can it's, you give an example, please? It, well, I, I just gave you an example of the cows and the milk production. Yeah. Uh, there, there are companies right now, insurance companies, that are tapping into uh, uh, meteorological data in order to be able to see where the weather trends are going to be 5, 10, 15 years from now and pulling out of certain markets. In California, it's very difficult to get fire insurance Mm. because the models show increasing fire disasters. So businesses are pulling out of there. Mm. Um, This knowledge of, and I'm not talking about like maybe. uh, Let me give you another example. A company called Fuzzy Logics can look at your medical records, can look at certain behavioral markers and other things And combined together, they can predict with an 86% accuracy whether you're predisposed to become an opioid addict. Okay. Before you even get your first opioid prescription, right, from a doctor, 
that you can you can do an AI analysis and determine whether you're predisposed to become an addict, in which case the doctor can redirect you towards some other pain management. Yeah. Right. So yep. now we have this big opioid addiction problem all over the world. Right. Yeah. And we could have avoided it because you can't you can't fix addiction. We don't have any cures for it. We can manage it. We can, you know, tame it, but we we can't ever uh, fix it. Hmm. Now, you've mentioned and a so couple of examples now here. We've got, now we've got these tools that will allow us to head that off. So whether it's a business or whether it's, a you know, a, an entire economy, uh, those who have that information have a clear advantage and yeah. the rest of us are victims. Yeah, yeah, okay. That's, that sounds, that's, sounds interesting. I like the examples because I, it's easy to relate to these examples. You've mentioned a couple uh, examples where, for instance, I could benefit from the, the falling, the 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 addiction side. That's on a personal level. You also mentioned some examples in terms of business and economical on the economical side. How about the greater good of humanity? And then and then there's this word climate change coming up. To what extent can can this big data can these companies do? good for you for the greater good of you for all of us because i mean this this global warming is going to hit us all or at least the climate change is going to hit us all or it, maybe there is no climate change well this is the problem we have to decide we're going to listen to scientists and subject experts or we're going to listen to politicians many of which who have never uh had one class in physics or science they're most of them are lawyers Mm -hmm. And and lawyers are trained to argue and debate. Yeah. <laughs> and in the meantime, uh, where is the voice for scientists? Where are the where are the empirically based leaders? You know, many people get upset when I say I trust machines more than people. Mm -hmm. I trust artificial intelligence more than I do trust any political leader mm. anywhere in the world yeah. because. Because humans suffer from paleolithic emotions. Edward Wilson said this. He said, our whole problem is that we have paleolithic emotions, medieval institutions, and godlike technology. Yeah. And I have never heard it summarized so succinctly. Yeah. And that is exactly right. So, you know, at the point at which we no longer care about the empirical data, at the point at which we are no longer willing to look at computer models look artificial intelligence doesn't have any bone to pick mm -hmm. it's not trying to win an election it isn't trying to manipulate you it's just simply trying to take all the data and it says i don't care how you feel about this this is what's going to happen yep and i'm very comfortable with that data uh what i'm not comfortable it with is the interpretation of the data Right. Or the ignoring of the data. And that is clearly what has been happening mm -hmm. culturally everywhere. So how does can you bring this back to climate change? I can bring it back to climate change. We have over 800 billion readings of the uh, Earth's uh, surface temperature. Yeah. It's, it's not like we don't have data. <laughs> yeah. We're overwhelmed with data. And now with satellites and really low cost sensors, you know, it just uh, every every day the data is just completely overwhelming. And we can see all of the models, just like the weather tomorrow. You know, we look at various models and we're able to interpret. It isn't a question of whether climate is changing. 
the debate that everybody wants to have is how much are, is human activity responsible for it? Mm -hmm. And I think that that's a red herring. I think that's a ridiculous conversation to have because either we're responsible for 100% or 0%. Mm -hmm. It's more likely it's somewhere between 0 and 100%. Some human activity is responsible. And we think we know what those human activities are. Mm -hmm. Now, here's where I come down. I don't want to argue whether it's 10%, 50%, 100%. I don't want to have that argument because, frankly, it isn't a rational discussion and it cannot be determined with what we know now. But, but what we can say is if your life depends on it, shouldn't you err on the safe side? Yep. You know, now that's where I come down. I'm a very practical scientist. Mm -hmm. If my life and my children's life depend on it, I'm going to err on the conservative side and say, all right, human activity, these specific human activities are accelerating, quickening, or participating in some way in climate change, and we should stop doing them. Now, maybe they'll have a really big effect. And maybe no effect at all. But I would rather be safe than sorry. And I don't understand when people say, well, it, it, the climate has always been changing. We don't need to do anything. I'm, I'm all, you know, that's just not prudent. Mm. Yeah, yeah, makes, makes, makes good sense. Do you also with this, with this whole technological um, acceleration really going on or already going on, do you think that the world is converging to one, towards one big soup? Um, I mean, will will diversity eventually end uh, due to technology? Well, I think we're in a messy period right now, and it's very hard to see, you know, how that's going to end. I think that the fact that we now have, you know, Alexas and computers that, and we're relying more and more on computers and digital devices like our mobile phone, mm -hmm. you know, when we can't remember something or we don't know when an appointment is or or, uh, you know, we can't remember who sang some rock song. We're, we're becoming seduced slowly, slowly, slowly to rely on objective information that is not provided by other humans, but is provided by artificial intelligence and computing. Mm -hmm. And I think that that shift will continue to accelerate. And, uh, and I think that's a good thing. Because uh, uh, these electronic devices will deliver to us ultimately objective empirical information and will weed out. As artificial intelligence gets smarter and smarter, it's harder to deceive an AI machine. An AI machine will winnow out very quickly those things that are that are erroneous or manipulative. You have to, we have to understand machines are getting so smart they know when you're trying to manipulate them. Yeah, yeah. Are we gonna? Are we going? Will we become as human beings, uh, or or cultures? Will we be, will we become obsolete eventually? Well, no. What do you mean? The machines are gonna kill us off? Is no, that what no you're not 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 kill us <laughs> off. But I mean, it's 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 hard to. This can go anywhere. I mean, I'm thinking about the Matrix. Um, I'm thinking about you know vegetation, uh, vegetating human beings, for instance. I'm thinking about if I want to, if I am looking for, if the computer tells me this is not a good partner for you and I feel very strongly about this person still, should I forget about it or just follow yes, what the, what the machine says? About it. Yes, you should forget about it. Uh huh. Because you're driven by a lot of 
prehistoric emotions. Absolutely. I know. I realize you that. Have, I know that. You have reproduct reproductive drives that will release chemicals in your brain and make you feel euphoric. And for that reason alone, you, you, you may make commitments that you can't honor mm -hmm. once those reproductive drives pass. Yeah. So you, you have to be very careful. You know, we, we are modern human beings, you know, we're, 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 we're in driverless cars and we have, you know, little pocket devices that put us in touch with anyone anywhere in the world. But we have to understand we have prehistoric drives and emotions which enter into our decisions and our actions. And uh, and, and that is not a good thing. It is not good. Uh, and, and so to the extent that we can become a more empirically based society, it becomes a fairer society and a rational society, a less manipulative and greedy and, and disparate society. You know, there are things human beings need. I, many people don't know that that we've done oh billions and billions of hours of, of research on what makes human beings happy. Mm -hmm. And people are shocked to hear that in order for you to be happy, you need to socialize six to seven hours a day. You are you were designed as a troop dwelling organism. <laughs> That's how nature designed you. And when when and and I'm not talking about just on your phone or on social media. I'm saying face to face mm -hmm. contact with people six to seven hours a day is essential to to human happiness. And and people go well. What happens when you retire? <laughs> I mean, you might get that much at work, maybe. Yeah, maybe between your family and work. But when you retire, it's very hard to give people six to seven hours of socializing. And so one of the epidemics that's going on in every country right now is loneliness and isolation. And, and you say, well, how can we be lonely and isolated when we can connect anytime, any place with others via Skype or, or telephone yeah. or whatever? And, and, and because we're not having that face-to-face -face contact anymore. And that's part of that paleolithic legacy that wants what it wants. And it doesn't care you've got all this technology. You become unhappy, depressed, lonely, isolated. And, and we know this is happening. Look at the increase in depression. Look at the increase in violence. Where is it where uh, antidepressants, the largest growing group is under the age of 12 years old? Yeah, that's it's um, I I agree with that. I mean, it's I, I see this I see this around in in my very individualistic society as well. I guess in it'll it might slow be somewhat slower in more collectivistic societies like like China or India, uh, for instance. Um, I'm also thinking about, you know, how 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 honest can you make which country? How honest can you make Russia, for instance, with artificial intelligence? I mean, do you think the regime will actually allow this? That's not good for them. No, those regimes are going to go away. They, they, you know, they'll, they'll, they're going to become irrelevant. The democratization of data is inevitable. There's a period of time in which a few people have it and they exploit it. Mm -hmm. You know, a few people had internet communications and then all of a sudden all of us had it. Yeah. Right. And so now it's not an advantage anymore. 
Um, you know, a few people had uh, cellular phones. They were those big boxes. You can tell from the movies now. You watch movies and they have these big boxes they're holding up to their heads, right? Yeah. yeah, yeah. And so a few people could afford them and then that was a huge advantage. Well, now everybody's got a cell phone. So, uh, you know, this stuff trickles down and eventually the playing field becomes even. Regimes who are trying in China and Russia to control the content on the internet and access are they're they're fighting a a battle they cannot win. Yeah. You know, and yeah. and all data eventually becomes available to all human beings and that's the wonderful thing about artificial intelligence. Mm-hmm. It gives you access to all the data that has ever been created and is on the internet. I love the way you're so positive about uh, AI artificial intelligence because that is a sound that you don't hear that often. Um, the in in the what what oh, find it hard to explain to pronounce Watchman's Rattle the book you um, the for your first book that got published you said you were able you predicted stuff that you and like Donald Trump being president etc not maybe not Donald Trump per, per se but maybe the, the 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 type of person you made a number of predictions what's around the corner from now talking 2019 what's around the corner for us. Well, there's a lot of things that are coming. You know, uh, we we have to understand that facial recognition is in wide use now. And mm-hmm. so that will provide a lot of uh, additional security for people because, you know, you have 52 muscles in your face and and human beings express their intent to commit violent acts through their face. Mm-hmm. Um, we're even at the point right now. I don't know if you know this, but MIT has developed a little headset that actually uh, through audio will say the word you're thinking. You don't have to actually say it. it you, you think the word before you say it, and MIT's got a headset that will allow people to do that. So I've, t- I've predicted that that's going to be the end of marriage. <laughs> when you, <laughs> you know, I mean, a husband comes home and you go, put the headset on, I have some questions. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, but but it's but on a serious note, from a security standpoint, where law enforcement has to interrogate people, uh, you know the the gigs up about lying and concealing. Uh, we we have much better tools in which we can head off uh, dangerous acts, um, and and so that will be good. So uh, we should we should look at facial recognition software. Robotics will play a big role. We're now developing nanobots that are smaller than a human cell, and uh, and we're injecting those into animals and programming those robots to remove cancers and plaques that occur prior to Alzheimer's disease mm-hmm. and then to be urinated out. Uh, and so uh, when you think about it, you know, we cut people open and take organs out in order to cure them that's going to look really savage in about 10 to 15 Mm. years Mm. instead what you'll do is you'll Mm. swallow a pill with a tiny nanobot smaller than the piece of dirt you eat with your salad Mm -hmm. um, and that robot will perform uh, its duty and uh, and then it will be expunged Mm. so health care is in for a big shock as well we will not be the pharma industry will go away. We will not be taking uh, medicines that poison your whole body in order to cure you. Mm-hmm. And uh, and insurance will will dramatically change. You know, now with genetic testing, 
uh, insurance companies will be able to look at um, your probabilities of getting a massive number of diseases mm -hmm. and uh, and be able to narrow those down so there'll be no more group policies. Those will all be individualized as well. So there are a lot of things technologically, including the construction industry. We won't be building things with hammers and nails anymore. We'll be using 3D Vulcan printers. China is already producing 10 houses a day, 800 square foot houses a day using a Vulcan printer. Hmm. Um, and uh, yeah, it takes about 24 to, to 48 hours to build one house. Hmm. And, uh, hmm. and they're producing those houses at under $3,000 a home. That's amazing. Can I add, can, where usually my recordings are, are about 30 minutes, but this, uh, I, I can't help but just keep on talking. Um, but I, I have one more content question and then I'd like to round it off also not taking too much of your time. Just being the, the, the devil's advocate here. Um, in Brunei, that's the island on Borneo or the country in Borneo, which the other part is of, is part of Indonesia. They recently, um, uh, passed a law where homosexuality is, uh, is illegal and you could be stoned to death. I think George Clooney has actually stepped up and said this is you should boycott the hotels, a couple of those hotels worldwide that are owned by the, um, uh, the, the leader in, in Brunei. Facial recognition can recognize homosexual people better than, than, than humans can. Isn't this dangerous? Depends on where you are, I in, guess. In Brunei, it's a, it would not be a nice thing. I mean, if somebody would, if, if a computer, a, a camera recognizes you and, 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 um, designates you as being homosexual, you could be stoned to death. You could be in those countries, but again, those countries, there's, you know, there's early adopters, mid-range adopters, late adopters. There's mm -hmm. always going to be a few countries that, you know, for cultural reasons, for religious reasons, you know, fall behind uh, civilized progress. Mm -hmm. uh, and and from my standpoint, you know, it, it, those regimes will change. The younger people in those regimes have access to the Internet. Uh, they leave those countries and go back. Yeah. Uh, there will be change. We don't like it because George Clooney wants to go over there and change their cultural orientation overnight, you know, yeah. and thinks that if you take a big stick out in your Hollywood, uh, you know, personality uh, and you, you know, cut off their income that you can do it. I, you know, I have more compassion for that because I look at the long haul. Mm -hmm. Those cultures will change and, and, you know, Unfortunately, again, we're in this in-between period. Mm -hmm. We frequently are. Uh, but can they sustain that in, in, uh, in a modern world? No, they cannot. Mm. It's yeah. not possible. That's not where humanity is going. And humanity is a collective of all the nations and all the cultures. Yeah. Okay. Well, I, I, I expected an answer like that. I just wanted to hear it from, um, from your perspective as well, because that indeed, that, I mean, that fits in with uh, the same uh, regimes like you, we talked about earlier about Russia and, and China, for instance. Let um, me just say one more thing to, yes, to you and, and also to the listeners of your podcast, uh -huh. you know, because obviously you address a really intelligent group and, and, and I'm sure they've put thought into this as well. But that is that all technology has a dark side. There's no such thing as progress without abuse yes. or some some negative side. When uh, Charles Lindbergh um, flew the Atlantic, he won many 
peace prizes mm-hmm. uh, because it was thought that you could shuttle diplomats and heads of state from country to country. And if they could meet face to face so easily mm-hmm. that this would broker greater peace. Mm-hmm. No one was thinking at the time that we would be carrying bombs with those planes. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Right. And when the Internet came about, we weren't thinking about we were all thinking what a wonderful thing we can do online shopping and talk to each other over Skype. And no one was thinking about identity theft or they could attack your electrical grid. I mean, there's a dark side to every technology on Earth. Hmm. Uh, but I think that it's better to look at how technology, it, it always does so much more good than bad. And to dwell on the negative side, I think, is to be unrealistic. These countries that are using facial recognition to identify who is gay and you know, and who's undesirable in the society mm-hmm. have really missed the, the, the upside of the technology as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, yeah, agree, fully agree. Uh, I'm also very looking, oh, looking forward. Um, yeah, I think AI is a good thing. It's going to happen anyway, so might as well embrace it and, and, make, and, and make do the best with it, I think. That's right. I mean, don't be afraid of it. Embrace it. It's going to happen. You don't. It doesn't matter if you like it or don't like it. Exactly. It's going to happen. And put it to use for the greater good, mm-hmm. uh, because the greater good it can do is far and above outweighs any negative connotations. Yeah, true. Rebecca, uh, two last questions. The uh, the one I've uh, I've prepped you for already in the beginning, uh, right before actually hitting record here. Can you give us three tips out of your vast experience to become more culturally competent? Uh, I you know I, I I've thought about that and <laughs> and I think I can give you maybe a couple tips. One of them is you know do not rely on one source for information and mm-hmm. data. You know, make cultivate, work on having two or three sources that you get your information from. Because if you're getting your information from only one source, chances are you're only listening to people who agree with you and your perspective. Yes. And that's a dangerous thing to do right now. It doesn't it doesn't promote critical thinking. And so it's very important to listen to multiple sources. The second thing is get out ahead of change. It's no longer sufficient to think that you can adapt once the change is at your front door. What you need to do is pre-adapt, and that is to look out ahead and see what's coming. Don't reject it. Don't fear it, but lean into it and get yourself ready. You need time to adapt, uh, and that's the thing that we lose. We, we don't get as much time to catch up as we used to have. Yeah. Those would be, yeah. I think, the two main pointers that I would I would put out okay. there. Great. All right. Perfect. Two points. Don't rely only on one source and uh, and pre-dept rather than adapt, because that's post-depting if you want. Um, if people want to get in touch with you, how could they do that? Well, they can go to my website, which is www.rebeccacosta.com. That's R-E-B-E-C-C-A-C-O-S-T-A. Dot com okay. and uh, they can click on the contact page and I'm more than happy to answer any questions that, that are submitted to us. I, I still uh, take time in the evenings to answer all the email inquiries that come in. Oh. <laughs> A little Netflix watching for you, I guess. I guess so. Somebody said, do you ever sleep? And my answer was no. No. <laughs> There's no time. No. There's no time to sleep. I'll sleep when I'm dead. <laughs> If that ever happens, because we might never die. And that was the frog in my throat. 
Rebecca, Rebecca thank you so much for your time um, and your insights. I'm pretty sure we'll bump into each other. And um, I really enjoyed this talk. Thanks. Well, thank you so much, Chris, and keep up the good work. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. Thanks, Rebecca. Excellent talk. I could have talked to you for hours about this. This is a, an amazing, interesting subject. All right. This was the Culture Matters Podcast. If you haven't subscribed to this podcast, please do so. And if you're uh, while you're at it, please leave a five-star rating as well. The music you hear in the background is from Bensound. Check them out at bensound.com. My name is Chris Smith. This was the Culture Matters Podcast, and I'll be back in about two weeks' time. And two weeks ago, in episode 125, we had Jen McFarland talking about talking about a lot of interesting stuff. Basically, check out that episode as well. So make sure you listen to that one as well. I'll talk to you in two weeks. Take care. Bye. That's it for this episode. Culture Matters, making you understand cultural diversity better by interviewing real people with real experiences. Your host, Chris Smith, has a plan. A plan for people who are looking for a solution.